Hi there, room 506. Thank you, one moment. Thank you. Hello. Hi there, it's Chris Reback. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Um, we can finally connect. <laughs> <laughs> Happy for that, thank you. And, uh, That's great. Um, um, I am ready to go if you are. Good, I um, am too. To confirm, how do you like to be called? Professor Stentz? Do you like Dr. Stentz? Do you like Angela? I mean, it's fine to call me Angela. Okay. Uh, I want to, you know, don't, I don't want the the first thing that you say back to me either, you know, during or after. Please is, call me Professor Doctor. <laughs> yes. Don't you understand how formal I am and how important? <laughs> Thank you. We can go in three, two, one. I'm Chris Reback. This is Chris Reback's Conversations. This episode is sponsored by Working Capital Review. Looking for the best collection of ideas that drive global business? Go to WorkingCapitalReview.com, sign up with your email, and each day get a new smart post delivered. So here's a parlor game. Outside of President Trump, who's the most curious figure on the world stage today? China's Xi, North Korea's Kim, MBS of Saudi Arabia? As Trump's interactions with global leaders raise never-ending questions, fewer as perplexing, or if we could only understand it, might explain so much as the one with Vladimir Putin. When the Cold War ended, it all seemed so clear. History was over, and liberal democracy would deliver a new Russia. But as the so-called liberal modernizers and democratic reforms emerged, so too did a period of extreme poverty and oligarchic wealth a debilitating era of Russian economic and social challenges, even humiliation. As that time ran its course, an apparent savior emerged, a single man who refused to consider Russian weakness and instead redefined Russian power and pride. A man who recently told the Financial Times, quote, the liberal idea has become obsolete. So what happened? How is today's disrupted, polarized world one in which Russia can thrive? Or, to ask the question in more common language, What's the deal with Putin? That's what Angela Stent explains through history and analysis in her remarkable new book, Putin's World, Russia Against the West and with the Rest. Professor Stent, or Angela as she kindly agreed to be called, is director of the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies and a professor of government and foreign service at Georgetown University. She has served as National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council, as well as in the Office of Policy Planning at the U.S. State Department. She has written numerous publications, including a book that earned her the American Academy of Diplomacy's Dillon Prize for the best book on the practice of American diplomacy. She's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Angela brings extraordinary insights that are supported not only by a sense of history, but also, as you could tell in the cold open, a great sense of humor. It was a terrific conversation, but first, two items. One, have you signed up for my free newsletter at chrisreback.com? It brightens your Sunday afternoon with my thoughts, show notes, extra questions with guests, access to free books, and more. You can sign up at chrisreback.com. Second, thank you to everyone who takes the time to rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Several more of you did this week, and especially with the podcast name change, it makes a big difference. So, if you like these conversations, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Angela Stent. Angela, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. 
I'm delighted to be on the show. We're talking about Russia, so let's start with deception. This sounds like a simple question, but I know from reading your book that it's not. Is Russia a strong country? After all, you, you frequently point out that Russia's GDP is smaller than Italy's. It's in demographic decline. Its military is still modernizing. It has decaying infrastructure. It's under multiple Western sanctions. And yet, Putin and Russia seem to dominate the world stage. How, how do you reconcile that? So if you look in the past, you know, Russia has always been economically behind if you compare it to the West. Russia is certainly not a strong country economically. It does have, you know, large deposits of oil and gas. And when oil prices are high, it does well. But it's fundamentally a petrostrate state in that sense. It has declining population. Uh, it has this crumbling infrastructure. But what it does have is the ability to project military power. It's, I mean, Putin has revived the Russian military and strengthened it, and it has the ability to project this military power not only in its neighborhood but beyond, as we saw in Syria. And therefore, it can use uh, that power, that military power, uh, to disrupt, to reassert itself around the world, even though the economic fundamentals are not that good. And I would say it also has a population that is very good at enduring, that's used to um, withstanding suffering and deprivation uh, and sort of carrying on. And I think that can also be a source of strength. You start the book by uh, focusing on the history, um, which I I remember when we used to pay attention to history. It was uh, fantastic to see that again. And (laughs) you have this quote that leads chapter two that it's some combination of ominous and crazy in that it comes from 1864, but absolutely could apply to today. Uh, So Russia's only quote, you know, for for the listeners, Russia's only natural policy towards the West must be to seek not an alliance with the Western powers, but their disunion and division. That could have been written right this year or last year, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there's, again, there's always been, let's say, among the kind of educated classes in Russia, a great ambivalence about the West. Um, We know if anyone reads classical Russian literature, you read Tolstoy, whatever, that the aristocracy, the educated people, they spoke French or German or or English um, at court, usually French, but they certainly didn't speak Russian because they kind of looked down on that as the language of the masses. They wanted to dress like uh, Europeans and act like them. Mm. But there's also been a kind of fundamental, I think, understanding that they're not like other Europeans, that they have a unique culture and civilization, and maybe they don't really want to be like them. So that's sort of on a a cultural level. Um, And then you've had a split in Russian history between a small group of people, intellectuals, educated people, again, who wanted to join Europe, wanted to join the West, wanted to become more like the West. And then I would say probably a majority of them who, again, stressed that the West is really antagonistic to Russia, that Russia is superior, um, and that Russia really can never be part of that West and shouldn't try to. The Russian idea. That is the Russian idea, yes. Yeah, as you outlined. So I I want to uh, talk about the protagonist, or at least the uh, namesake from the the title of your book, Putin's World. But, but, uh, you know, maybe it's the way you structured the book, but the the context and, and the 
outlining of, of the history to me really matters. So to, to jump from the 1864 quote, which, yes, uh, could have been written yesterday, to the end of the Cold War, which, as mm-hmm. you lay out, lay out, really sets the stage, I think, and you tell me if I'm interpreting your writing wrong, but really sets the stage for, for what we're dealing with today. So was Russia shown disrespect post-Cold War? You have a single line in the book that, that's easy to miss, potentially, but I think might have been one of the most important insights of the whole thing. And, and it's a line that you wrote, the assumption made in the 1990s that post-communist Russia was eager to join the West turned out to be erroneous. That, that's a heck of a miscalculation. <laughs> For anyone in the West who'd studied Russian history and understood um, the, the, these past influences, why would they have made the assumption that once communism had collapsed and the Soviet Union collapsed, that Russia would want to be like the West? And I think one of the problems was that, you know, people in the United States, in Europe, the people that we talked to, uh, you know, in the Gorbachev era and as the uh, Soviet Union was unfolding, were precisely those kind of Western-looking liberal modernizers who said that that's what they wanted Russia to become, um, a, a market society, a more democratic society, etc. And I think we probably underestimated the deep roots of Russian traditions that, again, make Russians wary of the West and also uh, very conscious of their own unique um, political culture. Um, and I think we somehow we forgot that because in the immediate aftermath of the Soviet collapse, those people weren't in command. You had Yeltsin uh, and a group of people around him who, in fact, were young reformers. And yet, if you look back, even on the 1990s, it's quite clear that even by the mid-1990s, there was a real reaction uh, to what Yeltsin was trying to do to have better relations uh, with the United States and with Europe, um, and criticism of Yeltsin and, you know, reassertion of, of Russia's right to a different path. It, how does today's Russia compare to the Soviet Union? Does understanding the Soviets um, provide useful insights today? Well, I think it does, and, and I say that unfortunately. I mean, I think in a Russia today, uh, which is much more repressive than it used to be, um, you really do have to go back and remember, for those of us that were around then, you know, how you interacted in the Soviet times when you went there, how you dealt with people. So a lot of that feel has come back. I mean, current Russia is not the Soviet Union, um, but it's also you know, where you have to try and figure out what the real rules of the game are, what you can and cannot say, um, and then, you know, the inability to criticize authorities, uh, the authorities without being, you know, either jailed or at least harassed. So some of that still has a feel to it. Um, it is a different Russia. Um, one of the major differences is that there are no restrictions or there are fewer restrictions on people traveling abroad, and therefore in the kind of younger and even an older um, generation that has enough money, you know, they've, they've seen the West, they've seen other parts of the world, and therefore their worldview is somewhat different. Um, so it's a mixture, really, of what was and what's happened since 1991. Did, did Yeltsin, Yeltsin, of course, brought in Putin. He made Putin his, his number two. Did, did Yeltsin have any sense of the person Putin is or the one he would become? Did, did Yeltsin know what he was getting us all into? 
I'm not sure that he did, and there are reports that at some point after he left office and before he died, uh, he said to a group, you know, if I'd known what was going to happen, I, I wouldn't have done this. Yeltsin in the late uh, and even mid-1990s um, was already ailing. I mean, in, be in between his re-election in 1996, he had a heart attack, then he had another heart attack. So he wasn't very well. And it became clear as, as time went on, and particularly by 1998, um, that he, you know, he wasn't going to be in office long. Uh, I mean, he had to stand down anyway, but they weren't sure that he would even make it to the end. And so he was looking for a successor. And because of the way that the Russian system developed in the 1990s, um, you know, Yeltsin was surrounded by a group of people, and many of them had made money in ways that, um, you know, weren't completely legal. You got the rise of the oligarchs. And he was very concerned when he left office that his family would be protected um, and, and what they'd acquired they could still keep, that they wouldn't be jailed. It was a very kind of cutthroat um, atmosphere then. And, and Vladimir Putin came in. He was a former KGB agent. And at that point, um, he had been brought to Moscow and he had been head of the Russian intelligence services. Before that, he had been he had dealt with the Kremlin property issues. And he was known as a kind of quiet, loyal person. And I think the major reason why Yeltsin chose Putin was because he was assured that this man would be loyal and that Yeltsin and his family um, could live undisturbed uh, and, and keep whatever they had. And in fact, Putin did keep to that bargain. He never, you know, no charges or anything were ever brought against anyone in the Yeltsin family. Um, of course, once Yeltsin was out of office, Putin turned on a number of the Yeltsin oligarchs, people who'd supported him, jailing some, exiling some. But the, I think the, the major reason at that point was to have someone um, who appeared to be loyal and who, and who would protect the Yeltsin family. Which which he did, and and you outlined that. So moving a little bit to to today, to the casual follower, and maybe it's not just today. Maybe it's the, you know the last you know well going back through history as as you outline to the casual follower. Russia seems like some character who just likes to go into people's homes and mess things up. Whether that's the U.S. elections or you know what they tried in the French elections, who knows about Brexit? But certainly we know poisoning people on British soil. Does Russia do better in a chaotic world than a stable one? It certainly seems that they do. Why is it? Why do they do better in a chaotic world? Well, because, you know, Russia is indeed coming from a position of weakness. Um, mm. If, you know, if you look at the United States, again, economically and militarily and in every other way. <clears throat> and the way that this seems to be the tradition there, again, it, it's not new. It goes back some time um, that they're very good. And Putin himself, I think, is being very astute at um, exploiting the vulnerabilities that he sees in the West, the West distraction in moving in and being a disruptor. What Russia doesn't really have very much of a history of is putting forward, let's say, positive plans. Um, uh, it, it's much more to, to disrupt and disturb and to spoil. Uh, I do think that that's traditional, and I think it's also a product of, again, Russia's limited resources at the present time. And there, those methods are effective. I mean, in our own election, um, Trump won, which of course was what the Russians wanted. In the end, he couldn't deliver what they wanted because of 
all the investigations into their meddling, um, but they succeeded in tapping into, you know, all the polarization that exists in our societies and European societies, and if anything, sort of exacerbating it. And in their worldview, in Putin's worldview, a disorganized um, and a disrupted West is much more preferable to a united one because it's easier to, if you like, divide and rule. And you see some of that happening um, certainly in Europe with certain European countries and movements, political groups that now are very favorably inclined toward Russia. And even within the United States, you know, there are groups of people now and particularly, I think, among people who support President Trump who view Russia rather differently. What's your interpretation of how Trump engages with Putin and with Russia? Uh, are they the same thing, the way he engages with Putin and the way he engages from a policy point of view with Russia? It's an excellent question. So he became interested in Russia, you know, well before Putin um, w was on anybody's radar screen. You but know, he, he, he had no business deals, though, there. You understand that. I understand that. But what's interesting to me is, and I, and I think that's something that journalists could maybe investigate more, he's been trying to do a business deal there since 1987 to build a Trump Tower or license the Trump name, and he never succeeded, which I think is interesting. So I think he was interested in sort of Russia as a business opportunity in the late Gorbachev era and then after communism collapsed, and maybe because he has a fascination with the, with the country. And then, of course, he obviously, there's something unique about the way he talks about President Putin. He's never criticized him, um, unlike many of our allies for whom he's had very harsh things to say. You know, one can speculate about why he seems to admire strong men, but he certainly seems to admire Putin as a man who gets things done, I guess, who doesn't have to worry about sort of opposition and, and critics. Um, and he's dealt with Putin, you know, very respectfully uh, to the point of, you know, saying, uh, standing next to Putin and said that he believed his denials about Russia interfering uh, in our own election. So uh, he, there must be something personal there, obviously, maybe an admiration. Um, it's just very interesting when you compare it, as I say, to the way that he treats the U.S. as allies. Yeah, and I don't know, you, you probably did uh, read, or at least you're aware of, um, the book Russian Roulette by uh, David Korn and Michael oh, Isikoff. Yeah. They were, uh, I had the, mm -hmm. the privilege to talk with them uh, when the book came out, I think six, mm -hmm. six 12 months. They, that book does, in my opinion, a not terrible job of outlining what you described, that history of, of business venture or the goal to have business ventures going back into the 80s um, and, and with Gorbachev uh, by, by Trump. So you, your, your point is, is well taken. Yeah, I guess you could say, you know, it's from a business perspective, you know, communism collapses and you have a market of 140 million people um, who haven't had consumer goods or haven't been able to buy things or stay at fancy hotels before. So, I mean, logically, you would think it would be a great business opportunity. And, you know, the early 90s and through the 90s for a short period, um, that did really thrive. But as you outlined earlier, it, uh, you know, really sought to – it ended up benefiting – um, you know, the, the, the oligarchs in a certain class and um, what well, we know what happened uh, with the rest of the 90s. You're, so I'm also trying to reconcile this, this concept that you raise of whether we are in a Cold War 2.0. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about, on the one hand, the um, 
what you just described of Trump's relationship and, and it seems admiration for Putin, the person, Putin, the leader, um, versus the policies and, and, you know, maybe within the State Department and other areas of the U.S. in terms of relations with um, Russia and also, by the way, other uh, Western countries and their relations with Russia. So are we in a Cold War 2.0? If so, how does it compare to the first Cold War? And just to totally pile onto the question, do you see a path where it potentially transitions to a hot war? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. First of all, let me just start with Venezuela and say, if you look at what's happening in Venezuela today, that really does feel like the Cold War because, you know, the, the Russians have been very involved in Venezuela since Hugo Chavez was elected, largely uh, because uh, under Chavez, obviously, Venezuela was very critical of the United States. For the Russians, it's great. They're right in the U.S.'s backyard, just as we're in Ukraine, you know, from their point of view. Um, they're supporting one side. We're supporting the other side, except that uh, Mr. Guaido has said that, you know, eventually if he prevails, he would still be, be dealing with Russia. So I have to say, and then when you, when you read what the Russians are saying, they're accusing us of that we're about to invade Venezuela, that this is a, you know, a color revolution that we've engineered, et cetera, et cetera. That language sounds very much like the Cold War. But of course, we're not in a Cold War. I mean, what, what makes it feel like the Cold War is that the, uh, the moment the anticipation is of antagonistic relations with Russia. Um, and, uh, you know, even though we're not in a global ideological struggle, because this is not communism, which has a universal appeal, um, Putin has certainly put forward Russia as the champion of, you know, what he calls the conservative international, supporting traditional values, supporting governments that exist, not doing regime change, obviously, unless it's in a country like Ukraine. But, I mean, putting Russia forward as this, uh, as the bearer of a different world philosophy than the United States, although it's not, again, necessarily universally applied. We're obviously much stronger militarily than Russia, whereas in the Soviet times at the height of the Cold War, we were much more equally matched militarily. We're clearly not equally matched economically. Um, and, and the other difference is, of course, that Russia is to some extent, integrated into the global economy. I mean, it certainly is in terms of its oil and gas, and the Soviet Union was um, economically marginalized in terms of in terms of the world. So there there are differences there, um, but but I think it's it's the level of rhetoric, the anticipation of that we're opponents on so many issues that feels very similar to this. Now, if you watch Russian television, state-run television nowadays, you really would think that war is imminent. I mean, they talk all about the time about the imminence of war. And once the United States announced that it had pulled out of the intermediate range nuclear forces treaty, this has become even more acute. And I think there's some people in this country who talk about that too. Um, you know, we still believe that one, you know, I certainly believe that as the two nuclear superpowers, both countries still understand the responsibility um, of, of that particular burden and that it would not escalate to a hot war. But I think the other thing that that's different from the Cold War is during the Cold War, the Soviet Union had institutions. It had party institutions. It had channels of communication with the United States that functioned. Um, we have far fewer channels of communication now. I mean, our militaries certainly do talk to each other um, because of what's going on in Syria um, and for other reasons, too. But there's, uh, there, is, there are less 
institutional channels in which we can engage, and they were during the Cold War, and I think that's dangerous. What did you make of the pulling out of the IMF uh, treaty, or the, the announcement that we would pull out, as well as um, the denigration internally from the U.S. by by Trump of NATO? And it it, it seems that there, there are just these, these actions that are being taken that have reasons within U.S. domestic policy, perhaps, uh, or at least Trump's foreign policy, um, but also seem to create, whether it's the destabilization or the reduction of Western organizations and Western structures, that destabilization that helps enable the chaos that, as we talked about earlier, is the area in which Russia thrives. Right. So I think on the NATO issue, I mean, Trump's denigration of NATO and calling into question whether it should still exist. I mean, that has to be music to Putin's ears. This is something that the Russians have always favored, a weakening of NATO, because it has been the most successful military alliance uh, in history. And unlike the Warsaw Pact, which was the Cold War, Soviet-led military alliance, NATO has been one where other countries, even though the U.S. is the dominant country, have had more to say. So I think Anything that weakens NATO is something that, from the Russian point of view, is beneficial and to be welcomed. Um, The pulling out of the INF Treaty is, I think, a little more complicated. Yes, the Russians were cheating. Uh, They say that we were violating some of its provisions. Um, But it certainly, you know, for, you know, provided a, a sort of basis of stability since the treaty was first signed in 1987. And for the Russians, these arms control agreements are also a very important sort of symbolic element where Russia and the United States are equals, and that doesn't occur in many other formats. So I actually think the Russians didn't want the U.S. to pull out. On the other hand, they can now blame the U.S. for the fact that there is no more treaty as they go on with their own arms buildup. Um, and I, but I think that for the Russians, they'll find that as a result of not having this treaty anymore, they're going to have to pay more attention to the Chinese buildup of intermediate-range nuclear missiles, and that's going to put more burdens, if you like, on their own economy. I, I think the other thing that we now have to look for, and I do think this is very serious, is the next milestone, which is the New START Treaty, which regulates strategic long-range nuclear weapons and was negotiated by the Obama administration. And we know that the Trump administration doesn't like any treaty that was negotiated by the Obama administration. No, it seems um, they don't. Right. And, you know, it expires in 2021. One can renew it for five years, and it's not too hard to do it. Um, There seems to be little interest in the current White House about doing that. The National Security Advisor, Mr. Bolton, is obviously on record as having criticized traditional arms control agreements. I mean, he did the same thing in the Bush administration. So we could be facing a situation in 2021 if there is no agreement to prolong this agreement where we will, for the first time since 1972, not have any um, treaties regulating the American and Russian nuclear arsenals. And again, coming back to your earlier question, I mean, that is something that... um, is cause for concern. So one more backward-looking question, then uh, I'd like your view on on the future and what happens going forward. Um, Reading your book and thinking about the history and then trying to mix that with the protagonist himself, I I found myself wondering about 
chickens and eggs and, and which is which. Would Russia's rise, in your opinion, have occurred, and I mean since the 1990s, the, the rise over the last two decades when, when Putin was in office, would, would that rise have occurred, in your estimation, regardless of who led the country, or was it unique to Putin, to his ability that enabled that skillful navigation? I think it's probably a combination of both. I mean, I think to, you know, given the fact, and we have to, this is the background to this, given the fact that oil prices were rising so steadily in the early 2000s, I think whoever would have been in power in Russia would have understood that Russia now had the opportunity with these high oil prices and high rates of growth that existed between 2000 and 2008 to resuscitate itself and to play a greater role internationally. I think to have thought that any other Russian government would have said, fine, we give up the fact that we were a great power. Uh, we're going to give all this up and we're going to reconcile ourselves to be some kind of a medium, medium regional power, as President Obama called them. I think that would have been unlikely. I think the way that it's occurred and the, the use of the deployment of military force, what Russia did in Ukraine, for instance, yeah. I think that is much more unique to Putin and the people around him um, because he had, because he comes from a KGB background and because he has brought into power so many people from a similar background to him, uh, they have, I think, a much harder line view of certain things than, say, if you had a Russian leader who did not come from the security services and who had had more, let's say, civilians um, around him. So I think, I think that that is unique, but I think the fact that Russia would have striven uh, to regain some of its, you know, previous influence and power. I think that would have happened under any leader. Two questions looking forward. One, uh, it's 2024. Um, Putin has just finished his second round of, of two terms. Um, so that's it, I guess, right? He just walks off into uh, the sunset? <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> um, there are many Russians who don't believe that's going to happen. There are quite a few Russians who think that Putin will remain there until the, the very end, that he won't step down when he's constitutionally mandated to. Um, it's possible that he will go. Um, he could also then you know, become the head of some other organization, um, a state council, sort of play the, the kind of role that Deng Xiaoping paid, played in China after he, you know, left uh, the, the top position. Uh, there are people who think that might happen. There could be a managed succession. He could choose somebody just like Yeltsin chose him. But again, we come back to the Yeltsin question. This time, it's not only Putin and his family um, whose assets and, you know, liberty would have to be protected, but groups of people around him who supported him, um, all of whom have a vested interest in him staying because they worry about if he goes, what happens to all the money they made um, and, and what happens to their family. So this next go round, I think the succession issue will be much more complicated to manage. Um, and therefore, it's very difficult at this point to predict what might happen. Okay, then, then no predictions. We won't uh, we won't hold you to, <laughs> to any predictions. But but I do want to hold you just in, in closing um, to a policy prescription and and a more current one. How should the West respond to Putin's Russia going forward? Um, are they adversary, competitor, partner? Um, what, what should the response be? What would you outline? Well, I think it's all of the above. So I think, you know, we can 
walk and chew gum at the same time and we have before and we've always had a compartmented relationship with Russia where some things have been more cooperative and, and some things have been more competitive at this point the antagonism shows through much more so on the one hand we have to I think build up our own defenses and we have to make sure that we we that we are better defended against Russian election interference and all the kinds of things we see on social media and in the cyber world I mean now we know about it we were slow to understand what was going on. So we have to protect ourselves. But I think we also do have to find a way to normalize the relationship again with Russia and to find ways of engaging. Um, I quote Ambassador Huntsman, our ambassador to Russia in the book, you know, which I think is very sensible. We have to find those areas where we have common interests and where we can work together. And we have to, you know, also under recognize those areas where we don't have a common interest and we can't work together. And I think at the moment, it seems to me there's a lack of clarity in the United States about what it is that we want to achieve with Russia, let alone how we should go about achieving it. But I think we have to restore some kind of balance between, if you like, defense and containment on the one hand and engagement on the other. Angela, thank you. It, 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 I really, really enjoyed the book and uh, just a, an, an, an excellent outline and, and overview of the history. And it, we didn't even get to talk about China. You write about China and LATAM and, and other places as well. Um, but just a, a really, you know, just an extraordinary contribution. Thank you uh, for the time and for the book. Thank you so much. I enjoyed the conversation. That was my conversation with Angela Stent. My thanks to Angela for the conversation and you for listening. Quick reminders, sign up for my newsletter at chrisreback.com. And if you liked this conversation, please give it the five-star rating on iTunes. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon. Thank you.